Now, according to this year's Stack Overflow Developer Survey, 49% of technologists said they learned to code from online courses and certifications. If you're looking to upgrade your skills, start a free trial with Pluralsight today to see if their tech courses, skill assessments, and hands-on labs are right for you. Visit Pluralsight.com stack to learn more. Hello, everybody. Welcome back to the Stack Overflow podcast, Astrological Sign Edition, Gemini Plus Pro Ultra Edition. Hey, Gemini in the house. I am your host, Ben Popper, Director of Content at Stack Overflow, identify as a Pisces, kind of an Aries cusp Pisces, but you know, we're all your own. Um, and I'm joined today, as I often am, by the wonderful members of the content team, Ira May and Ryan Donovan. How's it going, y'all? Good enough. Oof. Good enough. Identify as a uh, double Leo over here. Double Leo? Oh, cool. And you have twins. Gemini Leo. So let's start with the big news from yesterday. Google released its Gemini model, which is meant to be a competitor to all the other AI models out there, and which they claim is state-of-the-art, top-of-its-class, performs better than everything else, because it's multimodal from the beginning. So the really fun stuff they do is they'll talk to it and they'll say, hey, you know, I'm going to put this paper ball down on the, on the table here and then I'll cover it up with one cup and two other cups. And it's like, oh, I see what you're doing here. You want to play a game? Let's, let's play. Find the ball. And then you, know, you start humming a tune and it's like, oh, you like country western? Let me make you a song. You know, it's, just, it's got all these other modalities now, video, image, sound, text, and it can do some pretty fun things. I'll take first thoughts, first reactions, <laughs> and then we can dive into Alpha Code 2, which is a little bit more pertinent to this mm-hmm. podcast. They made a fine-tuned version or they, a subversion of Gemini that's all about competitive coding, which we should discuss. Yeah. I mean, you know, Sundar Pichai's demo video is certainly full of very cool stuff, right? Like drawing something and describe what he's drawing. And it's like, oh, it's a, it's a duck. And it's blue. And it's like, oh, it's not, you know... Like any, uh, I don't know of any blue ducks in the wild. And then it's a rubber duck. And like, it seems to have reasoning. That's really cool. But I would love to see somebody who doesn't work at Google play with this and do a demo. Yes. We won't get to see it in the wild. You can play with a enhanced version of Bard, which is supposed to have better reasoning capabilities in chat, but does not yet give you any of the multimodality, still just text only. So super fun, as you point out, demo video, no chance to go hands-on, and no users have gone hands-on, aside from maybe a YouTuber, Mark Roebling, may, like, made a video with it. But again, there, I think it was mostly just suggesting things to him by text, and he was kind of acting them out. Ira, thoughts on our AGI overlord? Uh, I'm, I'm not sure that I have thoughts on that specifically, but I did read um, an article today that was all about how governments uh, in Europe and in the United States are sort of failing to regulate AI because it is it is evolving too quickly. It's sort of taking shape too fast for them mm. to keep up with. So this does seem kind of relevant here. Right. Excellent point. And I will say my favorite YouTube channel, AI Explained. This person always goes and like reads the full 60-page technical report when something like Gemini or AlphaCode comes out and then does a video. He is a Londoner and was disappointed to say, none of this is coming to the EU. Precisely because Google's like, we're not really sure what the regulatory situation is like. We're not you know, exactly sure how to, what's going to happen. So for now, it's going to be a US-only release. Although it is worth pointing out another thing that this model does, which is a bit different from uh, ChatGPT. Not completely different, but you know where it sort of excels is that it speaks like 60 languages and can go back and forth between all of them. 
and you can speak to it, for example, in Chinese, and it won't translate that to text. It'll understand it as audio, and so therefore would understand tonality or something like that. Mm -hmm. So, you know, for a global behemoth like Google, this is really interesting. All right, let me push us forward a little bit to alpha code two. Mm -hmm. So something we've referenced a bunch in our writing on the blog as we discuss AI assistance and, you know, where Stack Overflow is going to sit in the new world of Gen AI is, you know, AI that's going to help you code and, you know, where the modern programmer sits in relation to AI. Will it re replace them? Will it enhance them? Et cetera. So they made a version of alpha code back in the day, which in part draws on alpha zero, worth mentioning the lineage here, you know, the program that was the first to beat humans in Go, beat StarCraft, mm -hmm. cracked the code of how to discover a protein. That's the DeepMind company stuff. So AlphaCode, now powered by Gemini under the hood, previously was like an average competitive programmer. It scored in the 50th percentile. Now it scores in the 85th percentile. And they say, what is so interesting about this is that to do these kind of competitive programming questions and you know to score at this level you have to be able to ideate theorize test iterate and in some ways be novel that they made it take tests that had never been leaked on the internet so they say who knows but that you know it can sit down like and have a bit of a, a mind of its own so yeah, I mean, I think this continues just to sort of push forward the discourse of mm -hmm. how soon will this kind of program, you know, be able to replace a software developer in a certain capacity. You know, Google, I think, is on board with the messaging that this is meant to augment, not replace. And they mentioned, you know, when AlphaCode is paired with a human, it does even better. So mm -hmm. not to worry. <laughs> Every AI will get a human buddy. Okay. <laughs> yeah. Uh you know, the poor competitor programmers, right? They're out because, you know, they're competing against this machine that can do re reasoning now and has access to all code ever right. written on GitHub. So, or wherever. Right. So the, the rebuttal there, Ryan, is uh, people continue to play chess and go. They just don't play it against a computer, except, you know, with right. a tuned down rating. And they've learned things from this stuff. And the average you know, skill level of a human is now better because we've picked up some strategies and we've upped our game. We can still play for the joy of it. These are games after all. I mean, I guess if you're a competitor, it's your, it's your sport. But I don't know if competitive programming... I don't know if you can make a living at competitive programming. You should look that up. I'm not sure. I mean, you can put it on your resume and then make a living. Right. I guess one thing worth mentioning is like one thing that I always thought was interesting, you know, when people are testing out an AI system is they'll say, I asked it to write this algorithm and 30 seconds later, it spit back this thing and it wasn't quite right. And it's like, well, yeah, if you asked a human being to write that algorithm and expected it back in 30 seconds, it probably wouldn't be great either. You know, mm -hmm. like we have this expectation that if we ask it something, it should be right on the first try. And in the competitive programming test that they let it take, they let it do chain of thought. So like think it through in steps and they let it do sort of like test out 10 ideas, you know, write them all down and then, you know, pick the one you think is best. And so that actually, again, you know, maybe a human being would test a few ideas before going. Obviously, an AI, you know, has the capacity to test way more ideas way faster. And so in that sense, it's not really a fair, not, not that it's meant to be fair, but, um, you know, its approach is scalable in a way that human creativity and intelligence isn't. Yeah, I mean, I, I think that's that's what makes this release so interesting. It's got the sort of chain of thought reasoning, right? Like from that video, it's doing chain of thought reasoning on, you know, 
what is duck that's blue and then kind of revising it, revising it. And I think the coding video talked about it. It's sort of coming up with a dynamic programming solution. And they're like, oh, this is taking concept and then applying it to a different problem. And that's an interesting sort of chain of thought there, like solving a problem and then adjusting it to be better. Yeah, I think, you know, it beating all these benchmarks is probably less interesting in the long run than we continue to make progress and it continues to develop sort of new capabilities. Um, that That's what's interesting. And we continue to move towards like multimodality that would be closer and closer to the way a human would interact with the world. Ryan, you made the point about, you know, dynamic programming and, you know, like what can and can it not do. <laughs> they also made the claim that it can contribute to scientific discovery. Sure. The way they kind of framed that was, here's a paper where they, it's sort of like a meta review. They went and looked at a thousand right. different genetic papers and they pulled out ones that are relevant and therefore they could do a statistical analysis and therefore they could drive the field forward by saying sort of like, if you look at these hundred papers out of these thousand, you know, we're learning some X. And the machine is also very capable of doing that. In fact, it's way better at reading a thousand papers, figuring out which ones are salient and then going forward. So it's not making a new discovery in the sense of like Einstein saying, I think, <laughs> you know, time is relative or, you know, flexible, but it's, it's able to help folks who are in the scientific community make progress by being sort of like a knowledge worker in the background. And this is similar, Ryan, to what you and I mm-hmm. talked about with the folks at Sorcero. Nobody can keep up with all the medical literature, but if you have you know, right. this AI assistant, it can point you in the right direction on a day-by-day basis if you're focused on solving a specific you know, problem or disease or mm-hmm. looking for a cure. Yeah, and I, I think that specific example took the new data and added it to a graph. And it, it both found the right data, aggregated it, and then looked at the graph and figured out how to plot that graph right. and then added the new data to that, that graph plot. Right. All right. We have given a, a bunch of airtime to Gemini. It certainly is interesting. We continue to write on the site about all this stuff. Ryan and Ian and I are involved right now in writing a big ebook about AI that hopefully will be out for you all to check out next quarter, as well as going through sort of a overview of what we think is going to be happening in the world of search and IDEs knowledge ingestion and how chat will change in 2024. Uh, so Ira, back to your point about, you know, our government's keeping up with this. I guess there's a lot of messaging that came with the release of Gemini. We have a red team. We're not releasing the ultra version yet because we don't think, you know, I fully tested it. You know, ethics is baked in from the beginning. I would argue that I play the devil's advocate and say, at no time in history have people at the forefront of technology spent so much time as they release each new thing, talking about safety and red teaming and ethics. When we were doing the internet revolution and the social media revolution and the mobile revolution, there was none of this. So mm-hmm. maybe we're not keeping up, but companies are sort of hyper aware. I don't know. What would you say to that? I think they're very visibly aware because I think this is something that people are, you know, it's sort of a, an exciting topic to talk about, you know, like robots taking our jobs. I think that was actually a, an article title that we used, you know, sort of this tongue in cheek mm-hmm. reference to the fact that people do have some like actual existential anxiety around the topic of AI that they don't necessarily have around, mm-hmm. you know, other pieces of technology. Right. I think that might be a, a part of what makes it different is the sort of psychological yeah power. Yeah. And I mean, it seems to be uh, being developed more in the open, right? Like there's the um, the story when they're developing the atomic bomb, like, oh, this this test could uh, destroy the universe. There's a 10% chance 
but people didn't know was being developed. There's nobody to assuage but themselves, right? Right. Yeah. I mean, I think it is worth mentioning that there is obviously a strong and vocal and out debate between scientists and researchers and various companies about how fast things should go and when it's safe to release a model and where you should draw the line between trying to build a business around this and being mostly focused on making sure that whatever comes out of this is aligned with <laughs> our interests as a, as a species. You know, I mean, literally the, the, a huge part of the field is that people who were very early at OpenAI and very influential there left to create Anthropic, which is probably like this number two outside of the big tech companies in terms of developing the stuff and has taken a different approach. And, you know, this is no secret. We're not, we're not disparaging anybody, but, you know, there was a conflict within the board of OpenAI about how fast to move and, you know, whether or not, you know, uh, the company was sticking to its original mission as a nonprofit, which is like the only thing that matters above all else is to make sure this stuff is developed safely and that it doesn't get out of control. So yeah, it yeah. feels like we're living in a sci-fi movie. It's pretty fun. <laughs> and I think there, there was, um, there were some people that did think this was, you know, put out really quickly and, and it was, you know, I had the benefit of being first, but you know, we just put out a post with IBM about how they built Watson X and they said they'd been doing research for years, doing these sort of research experiments, like, you know, uh, the regular Watson. And then ChatGPT comes out and it's like, well, all right, we got to, you know, we got to figure out how to make this a product and, and do it safely because it's cats out of the bag. Yeah. Other things that we wanted to chat about on this episode, Ryan, mm. you sent along a thing about wiki functions, an open repository of code that anyone can yeah. contribute under the Wikimedia Foundation. Tell me a little bit about what this is. So it's been kind of vague about what, uh, what it actually is and hard to interpret, but I, I think it's sort of a wiki of, you know, reusable functions that people can can use at will, like any of the wiki topics, but for code. Mm -hmm. um, and I think that's an interesting, you know, definitely addition to the world. And, and I'm sure people will be copying and pasting Stack Overflow functions into there, get their rep. Yeah, I have to say, shame on Wikimedia, wiki functions for saying, at the same time, it'll increase the productivity of developers everywhere as they can use a large library of code instead of relying on properly copy and pasting answers from Stack Overflow. No, sir. <laughs> sir. They may copy yeah. from you. They may copy from us. We are fans of copying and pasting from anywhere and as much as possible. It's not an either mm -hmm. or wiki functions. <laughs> I mean, check your code. But yeah, it's it's yeah. going to be, you know, um, essentially the same as what a lot of like NPM scripts do, right? You, you download a little script that is a single serving function. And will this have the wiki media approach of like anyone can come in and edit or anyone can come in and contribute or how, like, uh, I think because so. the issue with NPM and all these things is provenance, right? I mean, this is what we talked about mm -hmm. with Sigster, like what's going to stop somebody from seeing whichever wiki function is most popular and coming in and writing a backdoor. And I mean, that's the thing mm -hmm. we need to prevent, right? I mean, and people are preventing that on Wikipedia. I mean, what's to prevent right. them from going into any historical figure and right. saying they, you know, like wearing pink haired wigs. <laughs> Right. I mean, sometimes nothing. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> all right, cool. Well, wiki functions, we're all about open source code and uh, yeah. more places for stuff to do it. We had a great piece up recently from Ira about return to office, whether it actually is scientifically shown in any way to be associated with productivity. And Ryan, you have something here from the scientific community in Korea. Mm -hmm. Commuting to work yeah. makes you sad. I don't know if you needed a study to tell you that. I could have told you that. What does the study say? <laughs> well, so they got the the data around it. Um, Korea apparently 
has one of the highest average commuting lengths, um, mm-hmm. something like an hour. And they also have a very high rate of depression. And somebody, you know, correlated the data of how long your commute was and how bad your self-reported uh, depression was. And right. they ended up uh, correlating pretty hard uh, outside of, you know, all um, other factors. So the more time you have to waste getting to the office, the sadder <laughs> you are. All right. Confirm. It's team work from home here, except for me. <laughs> I like to go to the co-working space. <laughs> I'm also team work from home, except, you know, I also have two toddlers. So sometimes that requires me to be a team work from coffee shop just to get a little bit of um, more benevolent background noise. See, these are the things we don't talk about. Working mothers need a place out of the home to get away from the children. It's called an office and they deserve one. They should all have an office. <laughs> you know, there's there's definitely things I miss about the office, like, you know, talking to the people and uh, the yeah. the... Friday uh, kegs, but you know, the commute isn't really one of them. Right. Yeah. The commute is not the part you miss. That's true. All right. Let's go out on an interesting, slightly chilling note. Era, this is from your home state. Senator Ron Wyden is telling us that foreign governments are spying on us through push notifications. I feel validated. I turn almost all push notifications off. What's happening here? Yeah, I've done the same thing. I think it's just a kind of best practice for life. But another reason to do it if you need one is that uh, foreign governments and sounds like probably our our own government have been uh, spying on user data through uh, push notifications. So Ron Wyden, um, who's a senator from Oregon, who's kind of been an internet privacy guy and like forward thinking on this stuff since the early 90s, sent a letter to the Department of Justice basically saying foreign officials are demanding the data from uh, Google and Apple servers, and they want to know like who is spying on who and why. So no, no details about what's actually happening, who's being spied upon by whom, but just another sort of potential uh, attack surface to be aware of in your personal cybersecurity stance, I guess. Yeah, I think the thing that people don't really think about there is that all of those push notifications go through the Apple and Google uh, servers, right? Exactly. So you get all the metadata. Um, I don't know if you get the data. So if you have a notification about your messages that includes part of the message, does Apple or Google get that? Yeah, so uh, this blog post that was linked here, push notifications are a privacy nightmare, is basically uh, yeah, saying that, you know, Rather than you deciding when to open the app and sort of like what action you want to take in there, the push notification requires your device to constantly sort of be pinging in the background off to Firebase, AWS, whoever, Apple or Google, and then behind that, some server, and then the information is being routed and deciding when to wake up your phone. So just as you point out, Era, way more attack surface, way more instances where Data is being sent both ways and often unencrypted, it looks like. So we'll be sure to link that blog in the show notes. All right, y'all, let's take it to the outro. Like we do try to thank somebody who came on Stack Overflow and shared a little knowledge. What is the exact definition of group zero in re.search? This is Python group zero. What does it mean? The mysterious zero. Well, if you're curious, Manuel Va has an answer for you, was awarded a lifeboat 
Thanks so much, Manuel, for coming on and sharing some knowledge. This question was asked seven years ago and has helped over 25,000 people. So we really appreciate it. As always, I am Ben Popper. I'm the director of content here at Stack Overflow. Find me on X at Ben Popper. Hit us up with questions or suggestions for the program podcast at Stack Overflow. If you want to come on and talk about something, email us there. And if you like the show, leave us a rating and a review. I'm Ryan Donovan. I edit the blog here at Stack Overflow. You can find it at stackoverflow.blog. And if you want to find me, you can find me on X at Arthur Donovan. I'm Ira May. I'm a content writer at Stack Overflow. Also work on the editorial team and work on a lot of our uh, product marketing content. So I've been thinking a lot about AI from that perspective as well. And you can find me uh, at all the places at Ira Maybe. Sweet. All right, everybody. Thanks for listening. And we will talk to you soon.